Our scripture reading is taken from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 11 to 25. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There is a Christian classic. It's fairly recent as far as classics go, but we are talking the late 1800s, so none of us were around when it was written. It's by an author by the name of Sheldon, and it's called In His Steps. Has anyone heard of that book or read it? Uh, roughly half my life ago, I got introduced to it in a church that Carmen and I were founding members of. The book has a minister preaching from the passage that I'm preaching from. And he is struck by Peter's phrase, uh, he has given you an example to follow, you should walk in his steps. And that really weighs heavily on the minister, and he begins to really think about the implications of what that would be. And he preaches a sermon to his congregation where he challenges them to take that phrase seriously. 
Christ has given us an example that you should follow in his steps. And the rest of the novel is the congregation doing that. They decide, yes, we're going to do that. We're going to actually walk for the next part of our lives, at least, actually asking the question, what would Jesus do? And then actually doing it, whatever that happens to be. And the novel isn't sugar-coated. The way things fall out for the various people who do it, some of them are very successful at glorifying God. Uh, some of them end up having bad terms, depending upon what going on with them. But they all decide we will walk in his steps, and the novel is about what happens when they do that. The church that we were in took the novel and had a 30-day challenge effectively. Uh, why don't you do that as well? Why don't you walk as Jesus would have you, as he would walk, and see what happens? It's effectively the novelization of what would Jesus do and probably gave rise to that bumper sticker type phrase. Uh, it's a great book, but it's based off the wrong verse. If you're looking for a passage that really would convey what the novel is conveying, you're really more looking at 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. The truth is, we are called by God in Christ to emulate Christ. And the phrase, what would Jesus do, even though it is perhaps a little trite and cliched, nevertheless does fairly encapsulate the, the walk of life that the Christian is called to walk. And John, in 1 John, uh, lays it out as a general rule. We who are in Christ, who, who claim to be in Christ, well, we are called to walk just as he walked. If you see Christ living in a certain way, that's really your calling to do. Now, uh, it's significant to consider what Jesus did do. Jesus fulfills the entire moral law of God. That is his way of life. And so if you're going to, quote, walk in his steps, if you're going to walk just as he walked, then you're actually called to live out the moral law of God. So far from the law being something separate from Christ or inferior to Christ, uh, Christ literally embodies it perfectly, and that's why you can be a saved person. It's an integral part of the substitutionary atonement. Christ is worth more than all of creation itself, Christ keeps the moral law of God perfectly. Christ substitutes to you that moral walk that he walked. Uh, he takes your sin, and that is the great substitution. Christ is why God can be just and also the justifier of the one in Jesus. But if Christ didn't fulfill the moral law of God, you couldn't be a safe person. And when John says we should walk just as he walked, then he's actually telling us to walk the moral law. And in fact, 
in scripture, the morality that the gospel teaches is exactly the same morality that the law teaches. Uh, law and gospel aren't the same, but what they would have you do as far as a good work, they're the same works. And Paul says it point blank when he writes to Timothy and writes, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, who was, which was committed to my trust. So Paul begins at the start of that phrase saying, okay, we don't relate to God in Christ. The law, we don't relate to God in the law. We relate to God in Christ. The law is for all these things. And then he says, oh, by the way, all these things are against the gospel just as much as they are the law. Christ lives out the morality of the law. But be that as it may, when Sheldon wrote his novel and said we should walk in his steps, he was absolutely right, but he missed the emphasis of our passage. Because Sheldon is not, not Sheldon, Peter is not pointing us to every aspect of what our Lord did at this moment. He is pointing us to one very specific aspect of how Christ lived. And it is a point most uncomfortable. It is a point that uh, the flesh will pull back from. If you say to somebody, what would Jesus do? You should walk in his steps. Most people will kind of sugarcoat that, but they won't revile from it. They'll say, okay, yeah, that's, that's what Christians ought to do. Peter is pushing home a point that we're not going to like. The context that we're receiving the end of this chapter from begins primarily in verse 18, and verse 18 goes on to verse 19 and 20 and serves to be the whole context of walking in Christ's steps. This is that content. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. So you're a slave and you may have a master who is not just, he is harsh. You are to serve him anyway, and you're to serve him well. And to drive that point home, Peter has said, for this is commendable, if because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. The New American Standard translation wants to bring out the fact that Peter is telling slaves 
to submit to their harsh masters, but he's building that command on a general principle that is given to all people in Christ, not just slaves. The NASB reads this way. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience towards God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. So Peter is pointing us directly to what happened to our Lord Christ, specifically on the night when he was betrayed and on the morning when he was crucified, pointing us to the kangaroo trials, the uh, travesty of justice that happened that night, pointing us to the mocking, pointing us to the crown of thorns, pointing us to the soldiers beating Christ and saying, prophesy who hit you. This is not commending every act that Christ did, though other passages do. This is commending how Christ himself dealt with being treated exceedingly unjustly. Consider the terms. This is for when you are sorrowful from suffering. So you're going to suffer, and it's going to cause your heart to break. I mean, that's what Peter is saying. It is unjust suffering. You are specifically having your rights and privileges trampled upon. You have rights and privileges, otherwise this couldn't be happening, but they are being ground underfoot, they are being treated with contempt, and you are being treated with contempt. There is no righteousness involved here. This is unjust. And it is endured for doing good, says Peter. There is a worldly proverb that says no good deed goes unpunished. (laughs) And there is a huge amount of truth to that proverb. We live in a world where if you are self-centered and you are aggressive to your neighbor and you are out for yourself first, the odds are the world will reward that. And if you are selfless, if you are obedient to God, if you are actually good of heart and good of action, the world will punish that almost uniformly. And that's what Peter is talking about. That is what happened to our Lord. Our Lord was perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly good, and yet he was taken hold of by unjust men He was taken to a trial which was a sham. He was tortured, mocked, betrayed, and murdered. And then Peter says, concerning these events, Christ has given you an example that you should walk in his steps. As I said before, the flesh doesn't like that. I know, because I have flesh and I like it. The flesh likes something totally different. 
Solomon addresses what the flesh likes in chapter 3 of the book of Proverbs, verse 31 and 32. Do not envy the oppressor. The King James Version has, do not envy uh, the violent. If you look at the Amplified, you'll get the idea that the Hebrew term pictures someone who is grasping, they are forceful, they are abusive, they are everything you would think about as far as violence goes. So oppressor or violent, both works. Do not envy the oppressor and choose none of his ways, for the perverse person is an abomination to the Lord, but his secret counsel is with the upright. Now, why does the Holy Spirit, through Solomon, warn us not to, quote, envy the oppressor or to choose any of his ways? It's because we will generally do that and we need the warning. Human flesh envies the violent, looks up to the aggressive. Uh, who do we name streets after? Who do we make movies about? Uh, generally speaking, it's not the really nice people in history. Uh, we may look up to them because they were violent and aggressive in causes that we think were good, but almost universally, when we make songs or movies or books about people who have lived before us, it is not the man who dedicated his life to helping the homeless. It's not the person who volunteered to work with Habitat for Humanity. It's the conqueror, the violent oppressor, the one who builds a kingdom. As far as the movies go, the more explosions, the better. And why are things blowing up? Well, it's because you have a very violent person and they're doing that. That's how they solve their, their problems. In fact, Solomon, when he begins the book of Proverbs, uh, chapter one kind of lays a foundation for everything that's going to come. And one of the largest chunks of chapter one is this advice. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious possessions. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast in your lot among us. Let us all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path. For their feet run to shed evil, and they make haste to shed blood. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird, but they lie in wait for their own blood. They lurk secretly for their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owners. Again, why does Solomon have to tell us this? It's because at some level, we are attracted to that. As Solomon comes to the end of his advice, he has to say to us, now, 
look at this realistically. We're talking about people who are really terrible people, and they're going to do themselves in in the end. And actually, anybody who was sane ought to already see that, and Solomon is appealing to sanity. The problem is human flesh really doesn't major in sanity, and this is appealing to human flesh. We like violence. We like fighting for our rights. Um, We make our heroes out of that. And Peter comes and says, you have someone that you are called to emulate, and he didn't do any of that. Rather, Peter takes us to that night, and he reminds us who Christ is, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. It's a quote from the Old Testament, and speaks to our Lord's character. He is totally innocent. There is nothing that is going to happen this night that he deserves. He is put to unjust suffering. He is abused. What does he do? Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return? When he suffered, he did not threaten but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live to righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. How does the flesh respond to injustice? Well, it reviles in return. It threatens. It doesn't necessarily trust God at all. It's in panic mode, and it responds demanding its rights and privileges. It will strike out at what's striking it. And Peter specifically speaks against all of that. He says, our Lord didn't do that. Our Lord accepted unjust suffering. He had to do so that that substitution take place. Verse 24 and 25 are a description of substitutionary atonement. By his stripes, which he receives, which you deserve, but he doesn't deserve, you are healed. He becomes our sins on the cross. He doesn't deserve that. He hasn't committed any sin, let alone being the essence of sin. But he receives our sin that we might receive righteousness. All of that is absolutely required for the gospel to take place. Jesus Christ must be our substitution and substitutionary atonement by its very nature suggests that Christ is getting an absolutely raw deal. Everything that happens on the cross should happen to humanity. Everything that should happen to Christ happens to the saved. But that is, by its very nature, not a matter of justice. That is a matter of grace. And it requires Christ to be treated unjustly. 
It requires the innocent to suffer. He can't do this other than this. This is what God has created. He is willing to be wronged that he might be victorious. He saves his people because he is treated unjustly. What does Christ deserve? What would be justice done for the Son of God? Ironically, the person in Scripture who seems to know the answer to that best is the accuser. It's Satan. It's the wicked one. When Satan tempted Christ, what was his major card to play? In Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 through 11, we hear this out of the mouth of Satan. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, uh, that Satan feels he has the right to give them to Christ is extremely uh, questionable. But Satan does at least realize that if justice is done to this one, he will receive all the kingdoms and all the glory. This is what he deserves. If Jesus Christ reached out to take hold of everything he deserved, we would be lost. We would be damned. And Christ returns to Satan these words. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. You can have all the world, and it's yours to have. All of its glory, all of its pomp, every possession the world owes, you can have it. And Christ says, I don't want it. The scripture says, worship God. And I really have a choice. I can value the world, or I can value God. It's an either or. And I'm going to choose God. You offer me all the kingdoms of the world and all its glory, all its power. But I'm going to say no to that. The only way the substitution can take place is if Christ does that. And he does. He says, I would rather have God. I despise the world in light of God. And I will choose him. So Christ, to do this, has to not value the world. And yet, paradoxically, for Christ to do this, Christ has to value the world a lot. Everyone's favorite verse in the New Testament is John 3.16, and it speaks of the world. The devil said, I'll give you the world. And Christ says, no. Verse 316 of John says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So Christ didn't value this world, but he valued the people in it. He was sent by his father in a mission of redemption. 
he has to love us deeply if he is going to do this. He is going to suffer injustice. He is going to be tortured. He is going to be beaten. You don't do that if you don't love the ones you're sent to. So ironically, Christ has to say, no, I don't care about the world. I hold it in contempt. And I also love the people of the world and I'm willing to die for them, even though they are contemptible. Because everyone born into this world is born in Adam and born with Adam's sinful nature. The people that God will save in Christ are not great people. Christ has to value them deeply. So say no to the world, love the world. They're both required in Christ. And uh, we're safe. And Peter says, Christ has given you an example that you should follow him in this to suffer injustice as Christ suffered injustice. Why is it Christ like to suffer injustice for doing good? The Apostle Paul had a few comments on that because he experienced it very existentially. In writing to the church at Colossae, Paul writes this about himself. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Paul says, I am suffering. I am suffering unjustly. But I rejoice in this unjust suffering because I am filling up in my body what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. That is a very bold and striking statement. How is there anything lacking in Christ's afflictions? It's certainly not in terms of payment. Christ is worth all of creation and then some. But yet there is still affliction to go around for the sake of the body of Christ. How is that? Well, when Paul writes to uh, Timothy and he writes 2 Timothy, he writes this. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer. I'm not an evildoer. Uh, injustice is being applied to me, but I am suffering as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not changed. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, I would point you to that passage to meditate upon it deeply, because there is an argument out there in the world that says if, if God has an elect people and they're going to be saved, then there's no point in evangelism because God's going to save those people 
Paul speaks directly to that, talking about himself and says, uh, I'm being chained up because I evangelize. The word of God, though, is more powerful than any human chains. And I'm going through all of this for the sake of the elect, because God is going to save them through my ministry. So if the apostles of Jesus Christ thought that argument was nonsense, which he does because of what he says, it's really not worthy to put forward. Paul says, I'm doing all this for the sake of the elect, for those whom God has chosen, but he's working through me, and I'm evangelizing. And Paul was one of the greatest evangelists of all time. Uh, actually, if you look in history, the greatest evangelists of all time are almost always men who believe in the sovereignty of God. George Whitfield, Billy Graham, who in fact has a chapter in his autobiography called Predestination. Uh, sovereignty hardly has ever affected evangelism. But that's kind of the point here. Paul says, I am filling up in my body what's like in Christ's afflictions. It's evangelizing the world is going to require undergoing injustice. They're going to treat us like evildoers. They're going to throw us in prison. They're going to trample our rights, trample what rightly belongs to us. And Christ gave us an example that we should follow it in his steps. Christ had every right to every kingdom on earth. And he put that aside that the elect might be saved. And he gives you an example that you should walk in his steps specifically about this. The world will not be reached by a church that stamps its foot and says, I demand my rights. I demand that you treat me justly. The world understands that kind of response because the flesh does that. The world doesn't understand Christ's likeness. And I mentioned context, and I said that this passage comes out of the passage about slaves and being treated unjustly. This entire section of the epistle comes out of verse 11 and 12. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So Peter has put this in the very context of evangelism, has put it in the context of reaching the world for Christ, and now he focuses in on Christ and says, Christ endured in injustice, he in endured what he did not deserve, that the elect may be saved. He has given you an example that you would walk in his steps. This is not suffering for suffering's sake. There have been moments in church history where this kind of passage has been appealed to to say that suffering will purge you of your sins. 
Suffering will give you moral advancement. Well, the one who has suffered in the flesh is done with sin, but the, the context there is very significant. When we get there in chapter 4, we'll talk about that. This is not suffering for your betterment. This is suffering because you're called to be an evangelist. Our Lord underwent substitutionary atonement, which was not what he deserved. And he has given the message of reconciliation to us. But the servant is always going to be like the master. The student is going to be like the teacher. Christ is the message, and they treated him that way. If you're going to bear the message, you're going to have to be willing to do that and suffer with him. It is part and parcel. There is no sharing of the gospel with the world that doesn't come with being Christ-like. And Christ-like has as part of its subset being treated with injustice for the good of those who are treating you unjustly. What kind of person can follow such admonitions? Well, just as Christ had to not care about the world and deeply care about the world, so if we are going to walk in his steps and emulate him in this, we are going to have to not care about the world either. Again, turning to the Apostle Paul, when he writes to the church at Philippi, uh, he tells them all the things that before Christ he had achieved, and it's a pretty impressive list. Saul of Tarsus had taken the world by the horns and was a go-getter and was a winner, and he says this, for we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. In other words, you know, if you're looking for somebody who's impressive, well, you know, I was there. Um, if anyone else thinks that they may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. Nobody could really call me in the carpet. But what things were gained to me, these things I have counted lost for Christ. Yes, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of the resurrection, his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings there it is again being conformed to his death if by any means I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead 
Satan says to Christ, I'll give you the whole world. And Christ says, I don't want it. I'm going to worship God. Paul says, I was on my way to having the world. But I count it all rubbish and loss. It's nothing to me. Rather, I want to have Christ. Paul is being very Christ-like. He's basically saying the same thing Jesus said. I will have Christ, not the world. That is following in his steps. If you want to follow in his steps, the world has to mean nothing to you. And yet, paradoxically, you have to value the world very much. The suffering that Peter is calling us to means we are going to suffer for those specifically treating us unjustly. It will be a testimony to who Jesus Christ is. As he gave up his rights, so we will be giving up our rights. And it is because we're willing to do that for the mission. Christ had stripes that we might be healed. If you are going to bear Christ to the world, you will have stripes that those who hit you may be healed. The flesh hates this. The flesh says, I demand what is rightfully mine. And the flesh has a point because what it's demanding is rightfully its. But if you're going to be Christ-like, you will surrender those rights, specifically for the people who are attempting to take them, that you might be like your Lord, who has given you an example, that you will walk in his steps.